Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Twenty twenty used to be a term used to describe perfect vision or near enough to it. I wonder what we're going to say when we look back on the year 2020 with the benefit of hindsight. Will it be remembered as the beginning of the end of the American empire or the start of a new and even more prosperous era? Hmm. My sense is that rather than this year being the one that changed the course of history, 2020 will be seen as a kind of catalyzing event that accelerated trends already well in motion. From whopping increases in government borrowing and spending, to the continued debasement of fiat currency and the relative ascendancy of sound money in the form of gold and cryptos, the ever-encroaching mission creep of the feds into every aspect of the individual's life, from the growth of the surveillance state to clashes with the cops, from the trends away from brick-and-mortar retail and toward online shopping, from traditional mainstream press to the alternative media, from time-honored heuristics to newfangled claptrap ideas and empty calorie cancel culture. These trends did not begin in 2020, but they sure did hockey stick along the way. Just to take one data point, this year, the US will borrow a trillion dollars each and every quarter. Now, our mere mammalian brains are not equipped to deal with such large numbers, but just to put that into context, if you were to count every second from now until you reached a trillion, it'd take you almost 32,000 years. Just let that sink in for a second. That's how much money the US is borrowing each and every three months. Quite incredible. So yes, these trends are accelerating and they will continue to accelerate until some force of equal and opposite strength derails them. Now, will that be a bang or a whimper? That's part of what we're trying to figure out. And part of the reason Bill assembled this private research team. So let me just back up and give a bit of background here. Our operation consists more or less of five core members. We have, of course, Bill Bonner, who is the founder of the various Agora publishing companies, which have operations in a dozen or so countries around the world, from the US to Australia, India, China, the UK, France, Brazil, South Africa, uh, down here in Argentina. In fact, if there's an alternative press covering economics, politics and markets in your country, there's a pretty good chance that Bill Bonner played a role in getting that conversation started too. 
So we're very excited to be able to check in with Bill over the coming weeks and months and get his take on the state of the world. At present, he's hunkered down in his bolt hole up in northern Argentina on an estancia named Gualfin, which literally translates as the end of the road, appropriately enough. So we'll check in with Bill when and uh, where we can. We'll also be joined by Dan Denning, who is Bill's co-author on the Bonner Denning letter. Uh, Dan and I actually wore opposite numbers for a while. He is an American-born writer heading up the Australian Daily Reckoning down in Melbourne, where he was for the better part of a decade, and myself as the Aussie-born editor managing the American Daily Reckoning up at Agora's HQ in Baltimore. So in a way, we got to see the world from one another's perspective, and we were lucky enough to meet in plenty of interesting locales uh, during the years between. Dan is presently taking a break uh, from his own great American bolt hole tour, and he's riding out the pandemic in what he likes to call his fortress of solitude. So we'll be checking in with Dan along the way too. Uh, we'll also be joined by Tom Dyson, who is the author of the widely read Postcards from the Fringe. As many listeners will undoubtedly know, Tom and his family sold everything they owned a couple of years back, converted uh, the proceeds and all of their life savings, as a matter of fact, into gold, and hit the road for a pretty epic world tour. So we'll check in with Tom and Kate and their three kids along the way to see how their Dow Gold trade's going, among their other investment ideas, and to get a bit of an insight into their life on the road. And finally, we have Chris Mayer, who joined me for today's pilot episode. We already had a number of health scares over the last 20 years, if you add them up, you know, SARS and Ebola and all these different things, and so finally got the big one. Hope we'd be, we'd be better prepared the next time it happens, and we'll know more what, what to do, and uh, that's where I think market will start to price this risk in. Chris is the portfolio manager of the Woodlock House Family Capital Fund, which manages part of the Bonner family estate. And he's also the co-founder of that firm, along with Bill himself. Aside from being an accomplished investor, best-selling author, and much sought-after speaker, Chris is also an omnivorous reader. From history to philosophy, biography, economics, and, of course, investing, Chris brings a wide-ranging intelligence to just about any conversation you catch him with. In fact, I remember years ago attending an Austrian economics conference with him in Vienna. Speakers were staying in a historic hotel right in the heart of the city. Uh, Chris had flown in from Maryland, and I just landed from Dubai, where I was uh, living in the Middle East at the time. Anyway, we retired to our individual hotel rooms to freshen up before a bit of a meet-and-greet cocktail hour in the lobby, and I arrived that afternoon to find Chris already deep in conversation with one of the attendees, and he was talking about the history of the building and the who's who of famous guests who had stayed there and made the place their home over the years. It turns out that Chris had already uncovered a book on the history of the hotel and was dutifully bringing himself up to speed. Anyway, I caught up with Chris a few days ago for a bit of a free-ranging conversation. 
We talked about everything from America's quintessential naturalist, the man who was social distancing long before it was cool, all the way through to how technological change is often ecological in nature. And we spoke about some of the parallels between the late 90s market mania and today, as well as some uh, thoughts on bubblicious and not so bubblicious stock valuations. Now, it is perhaps to be expected that for a pilot episode, we had a few uh, difficulties with the audio. Turns out only the uh, one of the channels we used actually recorded, which meant some headaches for my very patient producer who did a great job uh, nonetheless with the material that we gave him. So we'll be sure to record with both channels in the future. But I wanted to bring you this episode anyway, not for the quality of the audio recording, but for the quality of Chris's ideas, which I trust you'll find worth the listen. So again, thanks for joining us. Now let's get this conversation started. I'm very happy to welcome Chris Mayer to the show today. Uh, Chris, as well as being a, a colleague and, and a dear friend, is the portfolio manager of Woodlock House Family Capital Fund and the co-founder of the firm, along with Bill Bonner, uh, who will be known to the listeners uh, of this show. Uh, so first of all, Chris, welcome. I uh, hope you're in good health and high spirits. How is the situation in Maryland? Oh, thank you. Uh, good to be on with you. Good to see you. Um, yeah, the situation in Maryland is better than in a lot of places in the country. Uh, and uh, but you know, we're still everybody's wearing masks, and um, not all businesses are open. But it's uh, it's just a new world we live in for a while. You know, right? Strange. Yeah. Well, I want to get into a little bit about uh, a bit of that during our discussion here, but um, but first, I thought we might begin by talking about a man that I know we very much both admire, uh, a man that Emerson called the truest American, which I always thought was a very high praise indeed. Uh, you wrote about uh, Mr. Henry David Thoreau recently uh, in a column earlier this week. Uh, I, there's so much to to unpack both in your column and with regards to Mr. Thoreau in general, but I wonder if you could just start by telling us a little bit about how you first got, uh, was drawn to Thoreau's work and why you think you've uh, revisited him periodically in the, in the ensuing years. What did you get out of him uh, in particular? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I don't know what originally made me pick him up. Um, great classic of American literature. So uh, I found my way to that book somewhere in my early 20s, and uh, it was Thoreau's Walden. And um, yeah, I've always loved that book. It's uh, in addition to being very quotable in parts, there's mm -hmm. a underlying life philosophy that appeals to me about yeah. his, um, particularly the whole simplify, simplify, and the idea of, uh, you know, he has a way of penetrating certain abstractions the way people are always uh chasing after things they don't particularly need and uh, pointing out the folly of all the hassle and anxiety we create for ourselves and um of course there's the whole thing with nature just being more in tune with the uh, seasons and appreciating 
even simple things in nature. You know, he goes on for pages about ponds or frogs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've always liked that, his writing style. And I've come to appreciate it more as I get older because I've learned more about him as a person. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned that in your, in your column. You read a biography of him and it, it kind of cast a whole new light on some of the lessons that you might have drawn. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, one, definitely. And one of them is, you know, the book, sometimes he gets criticized because people say, uh, you know, Walden is this thing like he's out in the woods uh, he was living by himself and, the, and people have this vision of him. But the reality was it was different. He was like less than a mile from this the Concord. He had neighbors. He would go have dinner at different people's houses at, at different points in times. He had lots of visitors. But of course, in the book, he talks about this. So it's right. people's objection is more to the myth of what he is than what he actually wrote about. Right. He's a, he was ahead a, a of the curve on so many things. And uh, I guess when we look around at the, at the landscape generally today, he was kind of the, I guess, kind of the proto social distancer, right? <laughs> With the, yeah. the, like, you know, voluntary quarantining kind of off by himself for meditation well, and contemplation. Well, that's right. And of course, on the politics side of it is another part of the appeal. He was one of the early sort of, uh, you know, well, everybody knows the story about how he refused to pay a, a tax and spend a night in jail about it. And, mm-hmm. and uh, somebody came and paid his fine, which he's, he was miffed about at the time. <laughs> yeah, he wanted to stick it out. <laughs> he, wanted to, he wanted to make Martyrs his stand. The <laughs> yeah. He wanted to make his stand. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he was very much kind of in line with what you think of kind of modern libertarian kind of ideas. And the other thing that I came to appreciate a lot about him is how many different skills he had. You know, it wasn't like he was just this guy who read books and, and wrote literature. He you know, first off, he read in something like five different languages, mm. and he had a number of other skills. He was a professional surveyor, and apparently a very good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very handy. I mean, I loved reading stories about how like, Emerson would hire him around his house to do things, you know, some shelves up or a fence or stone a cellar or whatever it was. He could do all this stuff. He was very good with that, and he, he, was, uh, he had a garden that he, ran, that he had in Concord that was well-known for its melons, so he was an accomplished guy in that. And then she was a great outdoorsman. I mean, that's some of those other books, you know, he takes these hikes and river cruises and things and just wanders around for miles and miles on foot. And, and uh, so that's kind of cool as well. Yeah. True. Uh, a true Renaissance man, I guess you don't get that, uh, that kind of polymath um, in, in the modern day and age, people have these sort of niche specialities and then they drill into that. And it seems like, you know, they've got their nose to the screen and that's, that's really what they, they focus on and the other great irony about it is that he wasn't well appreciated as a great writer when he was alive there's only two books that were published while he was alive and the first yeah. one was uh was not a success at all um he it actually put him into debt he when he had to <laughs> use his personal resources to get it published and it didn't sell and then he wound up having to buy a bunch of books and remainder and walden did well enough but it was a minor you know it was more regional uh classic i mean the, as i say in my column the giants of new england literature then were emerson hawthorne longfellow people like that alcott yeah yeah sure. i mean a lot of his greatest work was unpublished remained unpublished and the other thing i appreciate too with re- learning more about him was how much censorship he had to put up with in his own mm. life if uh either whether it was politics or if he was saying something critical of religion right i remember i remember one particular path where he puts he's a big reader of the bhagavad gita and he puts it on par with the bible Ooh, and uh 
no, no. You know, that, in those days, that's a yeah. big, big no, no, you know, it's a big, no, no. Hashtag cancel throat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's <laughs> a, so he would have things written, you know, serialized and then the, he would be upset at the editors for removing this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, it got so bad. Some of his things were canceled before they even run. So it was like a five part series and they'd run two, two parts of it and they'd cancel it because he was blasphemous. Or, you know, right. So. Right. But he was a great guy as far as sticking to his principles in that way. And that's something else that's nice about him. He didn't get caught up in trying to make a whole lot of money and a name for himself, but stayed true to his principles, followed his own star. Right. So, yeah, and amazing to think that, uh, I mean, as you said, he had only two books and some collections of essays and things. Essays, I think that, right. Uh, civil Disobedience, for, for example. Uh, Classic. I, I wonder how how if, if we could magically transport uh, Henry David Thoreau to, to 2020, I mean, what a guy would that, what a guy like that would think just looking around at the, at the modern landscape that 150, what it be 160 years? I think he died in 61, right at the beginning of the civil war yeah, yeah. Uh, as a lifelong abolitionist. So, yes. so that, that's kind of interesting, but yeah, what, I mean, it's hard to imagine, that? hard to imagine what he would think of what us even now talking on zoom or what would he make of a world <laughs> of, you know, people on Twitter, or Facebook, what would he make of these things? Or email. Yeah. It's hard, hard <laughs> to imagine. He certainly wouldn't be carrying around a cell phone. I don't think, but yeah. You know, yeah. Somebody who's somebody who I think he's, I love that, that uh, quote of his, he's talking about the three chairs that he has in his little, yeah. <laughs> little log cabins, one, uh, one for solitude, two for company and three for society. I think right. So, right. <laughs> three chairs, quite different from a, a, you know, international zoom calls and uh, things that we, that we have today. Well, he also had that famous line when it comes to technology that I love when he says they are, but improved means to an unimproved end. Yeah. So this, I was going to get to this. You led off with, uh, with the, the, the full quote I'll, I'll just give for our, our listeners edification here. It's uh, our intentions are want to be pretty toys. Our inventions rather are want to be pretty toys, which distract our attention from serious things. Then he goes on to say they are but improved means to an unimproved. And that's just, that's quintessential Thoreau mm-hmm. uh, right, right there. <clears throat> so um, what do you think we fast forward now from the, the kind of, uh, woodchuck wilderness of the of the 19th century to, to 2020 uh, and looking around we have um, we have increasingly a, a handful of these giant companies and this gets to kind of what you were talking about in your in your column that not only are, are dominating the markets in in terms of you know performance uh, to date or, or decade uh, you know over the last couple of decades but also just with the massive market cap that they have that we haven't really seen before. I mean, we're seeing trillion dollar companies or, or in some case, uh, not, not too, um, you know, multi-trillion dollar companies in the not too distant future, we think. Um, uh, and also how those companies are just insinuating themselves into every facet uh, rather of, of, our, of our lives. Um, you, you made the point in, the, <clears throat> in your column that... Um, Technological change is sometimes ecological change uh, in nature. And I, I w- want you to just unpack that a little bit for us because I think it's such an important point um, and it's not one that's necessarily intuitive for people, uh, the way that technology really, really reshapes uh, the environment in which it, it enters. That's right. And uh, that, that particular insight comes from uh, Neil Postman, who was a uh, author, and I guess well, now we call it media ecology, which has become its own little mini discipline. Hmm. And um, this is what media ecologists spend a lot of time 
thinking about and writing about, which is the impact of technology on the entire ecology or entire ecology of communication. So it's not just that, uh, you know, suddenly we have a world without email and then we suddenly we have a world with email. And so that's it. You know, it's just another communication. It's like email changes everything. It changes the nature of conversations we have, what we can write about, what we think about. And uh, I like some of the analogies is, uh, you know, if you take like an environment, he uses the example, if you take an environment, you take out caterpillars, it's not that you have an environment now without caterpillars. You have something completely different. It's changed the rules for survival and mm-hmm. whether where they were and the food change impacts other animals in the chain. And so technology works the same way. And we, he, you know, you can think of examples of, say, the printing press in Europe, what that made possible, you know, mm. it wasn't just, it wasn't just suddenly that you had a world that was the same world as before, but now you had the printing press. It changed everything. And suddenly the Bible could be in every home and it could be translated in common languages, not Latin, uh, and people could print works and, and it just, you know, it has a big impact on society well beyond the technology and i think that's the same thing we see with like twitter and facebook and all those social media platforms is that they are radically changing the Mm. kinds of conversations we have very difficult to imagine a a reformation or a counter-reformation subsequently without a gutenberg printing press right right yeah and i know there's other examples from history I, i think of uh you know the clock is another one some people say that you know before the clocks used to be just something that were began in monasteries and monks would use it to keep time and things. And then it became much more common. And, and then it wasn't just that you had a world with clocks because now you had a world with clocks, but they became ways to manage people. People had to be at work at a certain point in time and, and leave. And uh, I know I was remember reading about some of the peasant revol- result uh, revolts in the 14th century, where one of the first things they destroy would be the public clock because it was a, kind of a oh, means wow. for control. Right, you know, they, right. Some people say, you know, capitalism itself wouldn't have been possible without the clock because that's, again, it keeps time in factories and the uh, way you charge time for labor and things like this. So that's another, you know, tremendous change from a technology. And so yeah. we have the same kind of thing as, what, you know, if we think through what these technologies do, these massive companies, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, even just from the, the distribution of goods uh, around Europe uh, at the time and, and seeing, uh, you know, it's very difficult to have a train schedule. So g- getting back to the, the influence of those enormous companies, I, I know when looking specifically at valuations, it's very tempting uh, when we're seeing, you know, all-time highs uh, in the NASDAQ, for example, very tempting to draw the obvious comparison between the late 90s, very early 2000s uh, with regards to uh, the mania in tech stocks preceding the, te- the, the dot-com bubble. Right. Uh, you draw a bit of a distinction, I think, between companies that you see that are you know, super well capitalized and that have a deep moat around them and others that, that may you know, be kind of rising on, on the tide that's, that's floating all boats. Um, how do you make the distinction when you're, when you're looking at those companies between kind of the real deal and, and something that just has a, a crazy and maybe unjustifi- unjustifiable valuation? Right. I, I always use the example of like, uh, you know, Virgin Galactic is going to take people's space. And, you know, it's not, not, anywhere, not anywhere near, you know, making money, but market 
has the equity worth over $5 billion. The other one is Nicola, which is, uh, makes electric trucks, has, no, has practically no revenue, and that's worth you know, over $10 billion. So there are a number of companies like that, which are very speculative, uh, have huge market caps, and very little profits, in a lot of cases, not even revenue. And those are the ones I'd say that are closer to those 1990s bubble stocks that we remember, you know, <laughs> uh, and that are no, mostly no longer around. But the companies like, you know, Apple and Microsoft, Facebook and Google, mm. uh, those companies are tremendously profitable. I mean, they throw off a lot of cash yeah. and their businesses are so entrenched in the way people live. Uh, they're very difficult to dislodge. So that's what explains you know, why they're just continue to grow and grow and grow. And the other really important point to remember with these as well, uh, and Buffett has pointed this out, certainly not unique with him, but is that these businesses require a little capital. So not only do we have these giant companies, but they're nothing like you know, the General Electrics and Exxon Mobiles and steel companies of old that used to be big dominant companies. These companies take, uh, you know, they're rely on software and people and require a lot less in terms of capital. Mm. And that's a tremendous value. If you have companies that continue to grow and don't need capital to grow, mm. that is worth a lot in the market. Right. And it, I think uh, people might be tempted rightly or wrongly to assume that um, a, a lot of the market's recent behavior is somewhat of a reflection on a pretty unusual situation uh, at the moment. I'm talking obviously about the, the pandemic and, and the change in behavior of people who, you know, they're, they're staying at home, they're getting Amazon deliveries, mm -hmm. they're, I don't know, they're, they're binge watching Netflix in their underpants or whatever they're doing. I mean, that's probably yeah. not the best mental image for our listeners, but, right. um, but to, to what extent do you think that that, uh, change is is temporary, or it, is this kind of an acceleration of of a trend that was really already in motion? And and you know, this is a calibration of a new normal that we're just going to have to, in some way, kind of reconfigure. We're going to have to you know reprice risk in the market and and also in our lives. I mean, just you know, as as a as a matter of going to a restaurant or or, or not changing our spending uh, behavior, changing our our societal patterns. What what are your views there? Yeah, I think that's it. I think that latter <laughs> point is, is definitely it. That's what we're going to have to just reprice yeah. entirely. So some of it, I think, yeah, it's accelerated. So these trends have been in place for a long time, a trend towards online shopping. Hmm. You know, no big surprise there, but certainly accelerated this year. And then a lot of other trends. So people, you know, what, how, how much of this really sticks, we'll see. But people ordering out more versus eating in a restaurant. I mean, it might be a while before people are back in elbow to elbow in a crowded bar or, yeah. you know, go to sporting events and concerts. Um, you know, I, I wrote a couple of weeks ago too, but I was at a luncheon and it was outside. So it was very, everybody was social distancing and whatnot. But it was interesting that the host had all the sides wrapped in individual plastics. <laughs> so mm -hmm. you go have your plate, you grab this individual plate, that, and you know it was just like this proliferation of paper and napkins and wipes and you know, garbage. plastic cards, <laughs> garbage. I mean, yeah. not a not, not a good trend, but I mean that's that's what that's another thing that's uh, 
could so bullish, have a, bullish on long lasting maybe <laughs> <laughs> bullish on garbage. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but also the travel is the big one everyone talks about all the time. Mm. And um, yeah, I, you know, I follow the TSA throughput numbers, and we're still under a million travelers a day in the U.S. And what what is that? Uh, just for context, what what are we typically at? Uh, well, last year around this day? time, we'd be about two, about two two and a half million, something like that. Wow, so that's a that's so a big we're still less less than half, less than half. And yeah, a lot of days we're getting around seven hundred thousand, eight hundred thousand, and in in the depth of March, it got down eighty thousand. I mean, just so many things to figure out. And it's a lot of what we just don't know because you're not, you can't project how long these things will go on. Yeah. But, but in any sense, we, we still have to wake up in the morning and we still have to, you know, we have to read books and go to work and figure stuff out. And uh, even if we know that, that uh, maybe there's a half a dozen more coronaviruses that are in our 20, if we could look into 20 years in the future, um, you know, we, we still have to find out a way to adapt around that. That's what I think. Yeah. I mean, I think it's maybe not, you don't know what kind of virus will be, but we, I think we could plan on these things happening more. Mm. We already had a number of health scares over the last 20 years. If you add them up, you know, SARS and Ebola and all these different things. And so finally got the big one. Right. right. Now the hope, hope we'd be, we'd be better prepared the next time it happens and we'll know more what, what to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where I think, the market will start to price this risk in. I know I, you know, I didn't have pandemic risk as something I underwrote in the portfolio before. I've been in finance for 25 years. I've never had that never seen experience. It, no. no. In fact, I remember early on when it happened in February, doing some research and putting out a little note to my investors, looking at past health scares like SARS, which was, I think, pretty much the worst one, um, besides going back to the 1918 flu. And, you know, that research was completely off. I mean, it had nothing to do with this was, this was way beyond any of those uh, experiences we've had. So, but going forward now, this is something I'm going to think about. Well, you know, how would this, how's this business going to, would this business operate if a country had to go to lockdown? Mm. That's definitely something to think about now. So I, th I think there's tons more stuff that we can, that we can pack into uh, potentially a, a second conversation here, but I, I, I want to just uh, finish off with a, with a slightly tongue in cheek uh, question. Let's imagine that we did bring um, Mr. Thoreau forward uh, 150 odd years in a, in a magical time machine that Elon Musk is just on the verge of developing as we speak. Um, do you advise uh, Mr. Thoreau Buy Amazon, or do you tell him go up into your into your <laughs> your log cabin and ride this one out? I tell him to go out to his log cabin and ride it out. I he, so. he, he 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 wouldn't. Uh, he didn't value that kind of thing even when he was, you know. I mean, he lived during a time that was actually a pretty good time to be an investor for the most part. I mean, the railroads starting up. He, he was right there when the first mm -hmm. railroad railroad came out of Boston to Concord. Um, so he saw a lot of commerce go through and he was kind of fascinated by it. His family was in a pencil business, which did pretty well. And uh, he was pretty handy as an engineer and helped them design a better, less greasier pencil. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he, uh, you know, he has that whole idea I like where he says, um, I forget exactly how he puts it, but he talks about people with their farms and their cattle and their houses. And he wonders whether the people own the the houses and the farms and the, and the cattle, or they own them, you know, who, who, who owns what, you know, yeah, yeah. people easily become prisoners of the stuff that they own. 
And so I don't think he necessarily would have valued a, a stock tip, but yeah, promised he, to make him pretty wealthy. Right. I, I think that uh, it gets back to another sentiment of his that uh, talks about the differentiation between the ends and, and, and the means. Yeah. I mean, his, if you're already living the life that you, you know, that you want to live, if you're already at peace and you've got good friends and, you know, a small, but loyal, that's right. uh, small, but loyal company uh, with whom to philosophize and, uh, mm-hmm. and think about what matters in life, then, you know, the, the difference between the 10th million dollar and the right. 11th million dollar is probably not that. Uh, that's one thing also that's striking about his life is I'm not sure, you know, but he could get by with as little as he did just because the requirements of living are just so raised. I mean, he would, you know, in the book, he talks about how much he spent on building his house and this and that, and, and you know, how long he had to work to get that. It was mm. very little compared to what someone have to work to, you know, now to get those same things. Right, right. So um, just, you know, taxes and just everything. It's just some more stuff, <laughs> you know. Right. Is, where is he going to find? You know, he's got to find another Emerson to give him a plot of land that he can build on, you know. <laughs> He's got to get probably rights to permission to cut down trees. You know, so it's just like, can't do it. People yeah. in code will be knocking on the door saying, wait a minute, this doesn't meet code. You got to put a rail in here and you got to have a, where's you your, know, where's your disability ramp at the front of yeah. the, of your log cabin. Yeah, I don't think it would have been, been much more difficult. Yeah. That's a, that's another example of the kinds of things that would become conditioned uh, or sheepalized to where the, the, <laughs> when we have a look at the, at uh, you know, Thoreau and others who, you know, we're just so incensed by what we would today consider a gift uh, as far as a tax bracket uh, is concerned or, you know, like a stamp tax or something like that. We think, oh, wow, that's, if it's anything less than half of my entire output, then it's a bargain. If somebody came by and said, hey, you got to, you know, pay your $5 poll tax, he'd be like, all right, just pay and get, get out of my face. But he was like, hey, right. what? It's outrageous. It's like a high woman. I'm getting robbed. I'm, pre- I'm prepared to go to jail for this. This, <laughs> this is a matter of principle. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much, Chris. I look forward to having uh, more conversations like this uh, in the near future. Uh, and thanks uh, for having me on. It's a lot of fun. Let's do it again. Cheers. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.